This is a Queensland Department of Education podcast. Welcome to the Queensland Department of Education podcast series about the importance of STEM. In this podcast, Dr Terry Burnett chats with Professor Peter Doherty, Nobel laureate and immunologist. Professor Doherty was born in Brisbane and is the patron of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity at Melbourne University. The Queensland Department of Education Peter Doherty Awards for Excellence in Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics Education were named in his honour. Thanks so much for your time today, Professor Doherty. It is an honour to chat with you. Uh, It's a pleasure. The Australian Financial Review recently described you as a living national treasure, but we prefer to think of you as our own Queensland legend. You grew up in Oxley in Brisbane and attended local state schools. Can you share some of your experiences growing up with us, particularly what first triggered your interest in STEM? I grew up in Queensland. You know, I'm kind of ancient. I'm born in 1940. So in primary school, I started in primary school at the local school, which no longer exists, actually. It it was knocked down and and rebuilt on another site, but um, straight after World War II. So that really takes me way back. I don't remember much about learning science in primary school. It really uh, came into my consciousness when I got to high school. We took physics and chemistry as our two main science subjects and mathematics, of course. And I was always um, good at math and physics, uh, chemistry and physics. And also my dad did a lot of sort of handiwork stuff. So I was kind of practical as well. So I was I was focused on actually doing things with my hands as well as thinking about things. And, of course, the practice of science, at least biomedical science, at least early in your career, is a lot with hands-on. The one thing we didn't learn in in high school, though, was any biology at that stage in in the particular Mm. school I was at. I was going to ask you if if biology was your favourite subject. So you didn't actually take biology at all. It wasn't an option uh, to take biology in state, the state high school I was at. I went to Indrapilly High School in the first year the school opened. So the first uh, time I uh, encountered biology was at the University of Queensland. And I went there when I was just 17. And um, even though I was studying in the veterinary faculty, we did our, our primary ve- um, zoology and botany and science subjects with the science faculty. And I was fascinated by biology from the outset, particularly zoology, which was taught by uh, a guy called Stevenson, who had been a a guy who worked on worms, but he became allergic to worms. And so he switched to marine biology. And so I almost switched out of the vet faculty to be a marine biologist. But I reckon I'd probably get too sunburnt, so I didn't. So do you think Professor uh, Stevenson contributed to your initial sparking of interest in, in biology? Yes, he was an inspired teacher, uh, truly passionate. And though I, I'd run into people like that in high school, my, I felt my schooling just got progressively better uh, from primary school through, through secondary school, then to university, because I'm the sort of person who likes to go in great depth with things and try to understand things. That's kind of basic to who I am. And so science has always been something that suits me particularly. Do you think students' perception and the community's perception of the importance of STEM will change as a result of all the impacts of, say, COVID-19? 
I, I think it changes transiently, and, and I think we make it a bit mysterious by calling it STEM even, and, and kind of divide it off from the arts. I think what we want in the community is a general un understanding that, well, basically evidence is important. Actually, getting some evidence for something you're saying is very important. That's basic to science. It's not really the gossip you hear over the back fence or the person you talk to in the supermarket queue, but really trying to find out if someone is telling you something that's related to science, why are they telling you that and what's the evidence for it? And you can check that out online pretty easily now because you can start just with Wikipedia, for instance, that anyone can access and go from there. But we also need a sort of general understanding of concepts that are very basic to science. And one is relative risk, because that comes up all the time, and probability. And those are central to actually approaching life, but we don't translate those across into a lot of our thinking. Professor Doherty, you were instrumental in making one of the most profound discoveries in the last 50 years in the field of immunology back in 1973-74. What was the significance of the discovery for people's lives? Well, it was, it was basically a, a discovery that illuminated a whole set of questions in biology. And you have to understand this is a long time ago in science, a very long time ago because science has gone on and become incredibly more sophisticated. I've been interested all my research career in virus infections and how viruses uh, do damage and how we get rid of them and clear them and control them. So my, my area of interest is what we call virus pathogenesis, that is how disease develops, and also in immunity, how we manipulate immunity, which, of course, we did through vaccinations and so forth. So uh, we were studying a, uh, an immune cell, a white blood cell that goes round and round in the body uh, called the killer T lymphocyte. It's called a killer T lymphocyte because it can kill other cells. That's what it does. It's kind of an assassin that goes around the blood in our body to bump off cells that have gone wrong. And, and these things we now know can keep cancers under control or some cancers under control and, and so forth. But what we were looking at is a virus infection and what these killer T cells do in a virus infection is they kill off the cells that are infected with the virus because viruses can only grow in living cells. They get into our cells, that's where they grow. And if we're going to stop them being produced in ever greater numbers within our body, we have to bump off those cells. So that's what these cells do. But what we found out is that these cells were focused onto the surface of the cells they had to kill because if they're going to kill them, they have to get up close and personal and do that really by making contact. But they're focused because the virus is changing what we call the transplant molecules on the cell. So the transplant molecules are the molecules that were identified by people studying organ graft rejection. Now, nobody had before linked immunity to viruses or to cancer and anything else with immunity to the transplant molecules. And that's what we did. We linked immunity to viruses to immunity to modify modifications caused by the virus, the modifications of the transplant molecules, we called it altered self. So what we did is we explained how this arm of immunity operates in a very broad sense, but we also explained why we have a transplant system in the first place, because there was no obvious reason why we would have that. So it was a major 
it mm. overturned a whole uh, area of understanding mm. of immunity, turned it on its head and, and uh, made people look at it differently. And that's what they give Nobel Prizes for, breakthrough discoveries. A little bit more than 20 years later, you received the Nobel Prize for mm. this, these uh, profound discoveries. Um, how did the Nobel Committee in Stockholm let you know you'd won the prize? Yeah, yeah we, we got the Nobel Prize 20, 20 plus years later, which is pretty normal for Nobel Prizes now. Uh, they don't want to ever get it wrong. And, and during that time, this subject that very, very few people worked on, probably 100 people in the world at that stage, then had thousands and thousands of people working on it. So we also got the credit for a lot of their work in getting that Nobel Prize. So that's a good deal, isn't it? So that, that's, that's how to win a Nobel Prize. I wrote a book on it, Discover Something Really Big. And that's, that, that's good advice. You, you can't decide to discover something for obvious reasons. We, we got a call. I was living in the United States at the time, and so... Uh, they make that decision at about 10 or 11 in the morning in Stockholm on the first Monday in October who's going to get the Nobel Prize for Medicine. So they called us at about 4 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference. And I, oh. my wife picked up the phone and <laughs> the guy said, this is uh, Niels Ringitz from the Nobel Foundation. And she said, this is for you. How did you feel? Um, well, a bit shocked, but wasn't totally unexpected because the year before that we'd been awarded the Lasker Award, which is yes. the big American medical research prize, uh, and about half of the people who, um, who who get the Lasker Award uh, go on to get the Nobel Prize. But but of course, being a Queenslander and brought up in public schools, uh, I was telling myself, you don't want to have too high expectations. I was telling myself <laughs> half the people who get the Lasker Award never get the Nobel Prize. How did you uh, collaborate with with other scientists then? Or it was all it was all local. And if you wanted to talk to someone, you wrote them a letter or you telephoned them. That was it. I mean, there was no internet, so that was how you communicated. You know, we submitted a research paper. You'd send it off in the mail, and uh, and wait to hear. So, Professor Doherty, tell us about the research going on at the Peter Doherty Institute in conjunction with the University of Queensland with uh, Professor Paul Young's team in relation to COVID-19. The University of Queensland group led by Paul Young and his, and his colleagues has, has been doing a fantastic job developing a new vaccine technology. They call it the protein clamp. That was picked up a couple of years back by a global organisation, I think, which was set up initially by Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation mm. with various other money coming in as well, called CEPI, um, the mm. Centre for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative. So we call it CEPI. That's actually chaired by Jane Holton, a former uh, Secretary of the Department of Health in Canberra, a very prominent Australian mm. bureaucrat. Mm. So uh, CEPI funded them for two years to develop this technology as what was called a platform technology. That is, it's a, it's a vaccine strategy that you develop that could be used for multiple infections by just slotting in a bit of the particular infectious agent. So as soon as they got the word on the, um, the gene sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the COVID-19 virus, they uh, started slotting in uh, the relevant bit of that virus into their platform. And so that went ahead, and our role in this is we help with some of the assays. But really, it's a UQ-driven uh, project. 
the initial vaccine testing in animals is being done in the Netherlands right now. Scientific research is influenced by the needs of society and, as you already mentioned, needs to be evidence-based. Why is it important for researchers to collaborate and work as a team, such as you're doing at the Institute with UQ and people overseas when you're gathering these evidence, this evidence? The time that Zink and Agel and I did the work that won the Nobel Prize, labs were often really quite small because it wasn't facilitated by the internet and also because the technologies were really so simple that most people could do them. There wasn't nearly so much international collaboration. Things were more isolated in a sense. Now, because of the possibilities with the internet and so forth and rapid international air travel and all the rest of it, we collaborate across the planet in various ways and everything is linked and networked. Um, CEPI, for instance, is networking the whole vaccine development strategy, I think, for something like 12 different vaccines. I may have the number wrong. And, and that's being done across the planet. And so that's what we do because the situation is that because of the power of modern molecular technology, in a way, we, we're kind of all doing the same sort of molecular things, but there's no point in us developing something if somebody else has developed it. And there's no point in us doing a set of particular tests if someone else can do it much quicker and they're doing a lot of them. It's like surgery. You know, if you want a heart transplant, you don't go to the guy who does two heart transplants a year. You go to the group that does 200 a year. There's a lot of uh, misinformation in the media at the moment about this topic and other scientific challenges. Um, does it make you frustrated when you see some of the media reports that aren't based on scientific evidence? At the moment, the media is generally being pretty, the, the legitimate media, I'm not talking about the sort of crazy stuff that goes, can go on online, but the, the legitimate media is being fairly irresponsible. Uh, I must say what annoys me a bit is when they confuse a drug with a vaccine. You know, a drug mm -hmm. is a treatment mm -hmm. and, or a therapeutic. A vaccine is a, um, is a, a preventive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it would be good if some of the journalists took a bit of time to basically understand it a little better, but, but I think they're being pretty good. But that's why I think we all we need everyone to have some sort of basic education in science and how it works. I wrote a book for the general audience called The Knowledge Wars, which is about how science works and how you find out what's going on and how you see through, through the fakes and the phonies and the professional liars because it's not that we're particularly besieged with them in medical science. We, we're getting some of it and we're getting some weirdness around anti-vaccination. That's all very complicated, really, sociologically, I think. Uh, but where we're getting disinformation is, of course, around climate change. And that's been going on for some time with some major media organisations uh, really pushing anti-science lines. And uh, that's really been very distressing. But the problem is, of course, there's big money involved. With biomedical science, everyone wants to be healthy. So in general, it's not politically controversial. You're actually working on your sixth book at the moment, aren't you? You've already written five. <clears throat> One of my favourites was um, in 2012, you wrote a book entitled Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. Given now yes. what we're dealing with, is there anything you'd change in your book? Oh, yes, a lot. I've, I've actually published six books and I'm working on two at the moment. One has nothing to do with uh, science. I thought I was going to retire because I'm almost 80. And so 
but I'm also currently doing a book on the COVID outbreak, which will be published next year. And uh, there are pieces going up on our website if anyone's interested in reading them. The, the pandemics book is 2012, so it's dated. Uh, it's just been translated into Chinese, I've been told. But um, it's um, it, basically it's it's fine, but of course it doesn't cover the new thing. And of course, it's all very well to write about a pandemic, but it's very very different experience to live through it. Mm. And uh, even though we haven't had a bad time here at all, we've reacted quickly and well. And from everyone, from the Prime Minister down, it's done a really good job, and, uh, and the state premiers and so forth. So, so we haven't experienced the worst of it, but just watching what's happening and, and just the experience of locking down and all that sort of stuff, I've learned a lot more. I, the book would be uh, somewhat different if I ever revised it, which I probably won't. As an enthusiastic and passionate advocate for STEM, what advice, Professor Doherty, would you have for students interested in pursuing a STEM-based career? Well, uh, you know, if you're a smart young person, and unless you're totally turned off science, I'd do some science, uh, certainly through school, because it can help you in lots of different ways. You know, I talk a lot, partly due to writing books and partly due to my own personal interests. I talk a lot with people on the lit- in the literary type of community and the arts type community, and some of them, I think, have a very unnatural and, and quite unnecessary fear of science. They, they seem to get, it turns them off. And I think partly because some of the language that's used. But So I think what's very important is not to make science in any sense mysterious, but to make it human. Because it's the most human of all activities, especially curiosity, following up on your curiosity and then trying to, trying to find out what that means. And it often comes across as kind of difficult and, and so forth. The basic principles are very, very simple, and, and I think that's what everyone needs to get. On the other hand, if, you're, if you've got some capacity in math and or science, particularly math too, try and keep it up for a bit and don't, don't turn it off too quickly because even if you're going to be a lawyer or a, a banker, uh, or an, an investment person or something, knowing something about science now is really getting to be pretty important because that's where a lot of the financial uh, excitement is, quite frankly, in innovation and technology. So, you know, don't necessarily think, even if you go ahead and do a PhD in science, a doctorate, that is, you spend seven years at the university or eight years at the university doing science, that's not the only avenue forward for you. We have people who've had that training, who've gone into banking and, uh, and all sorts of other areas. And, of course, teaching is another one. Mm. We need mm. more and more great science teachers. So, so think of science as being part of your, just, just part of your education. If I can finish on this question, Professor Doherty, out of all of your many, many successes, what's your proudest achievement? No, many successes, many failures as well. You can't do science without... <laughs> you actually can't do science without failing because if you're not failing some of the time, you're not asking interesting questions. You're just doing... You're just cranking the handle and that's pretty um, strange. Not very useful way to go, quite frankly. No, there's been lots of, lots of great things. I mean, you know, the usual family things, children... Mm. I married the right person. That, that was that, that was a good. That was, that's a bit <laughs> of a good, good thing. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, all these things are important. I, I think stability and integrity and so forth is all very important. And being ethical, uh, being an ethical person and a moral person, 
is, in science is absolutely essential. You have to be, uh, you have to be absolutely honest uh, with yourself uh, above all. You have to be able to take your own bits of science and, and, and say, you know, what's wrong with this? Where's the flaw? The way I approach life as a science, I always pull everything back down to the basics and then try and build it up from there. Well, winning the Nobel Prize is kind of nice. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. That's, <laughs> that's, that, that's kind of fun. Uh, the discovery itself was extremely exciting. And the, the two or three years we spent, uh, we spent only about two years working together, really, in Canberra. Those two years were really extraordinarily exciting and, and incredibly exhausting, quite frankly. You, you win a few, you lose a few. That's life. If you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. And finally, Professor Doherty, I would like to thank you for being the namesake for our Peter Doherty Awards for Excellence in STEM Education. This is the 17th year of the awards and the selection panel are just finalising the award recipients for this year. I'd pass on my uh, congratulations to everyone who's been recognised in the past and will be recognised this year and uh, thank the uh, Queensland Government for taking this initiative in my name. I'm, I'm greatly honoured by it and uh, it's great to have seen actually how, how Australia itself and, and Brisbane and Queensland in particular have really, uh, the Queensland Government have been particularly good at trying to build up science and technology expertise in the state. And that's been from both sides of politics, and it's been a consistent theme. And we've seen some great science emerging. And the fact that we have someone like Paul Young and that group developing this vaccine in Queensland is a tribute to that investment over the years from the Queensland government. Because if you're going to move forward in an area that's complex and like science, you have to have that permeating the schools and the education system. And, of course, you have to have great universities and research facilities. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Professor Doherty. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you. A pleasure. Bye. You have been listening to a Queensland Department of Education podcast.